in fellowship, I think the goal looking back was really just be a good doctor. And I don't know if it's smart for a fellow to be focused on billing. You can make an argument for that and against that, but the concept remains, meaning fellowship is meant to learn how to be a better interventional pain physician and give your patients the best outcome that is possible that through your skill set. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to another episode of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Jay Kumar. Dr. Kumar is an interventional pain physician based out of North Carolina. He's going to share a little bit today about his journey through training, academics, and as a private practitioner now. He's coming up on the first anniversary of his practice opening. Things are going really well. He's experienced unique challenges. I'm excited to hear about his journey. Dr. Kumar, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's, a, it's an honor, actually. I don't know if you want to talk about our first meeting, but yeah. I thought it was a, a cute So we met story. the Aspen meeting a uh, couple of weeks ago now. Yeah. Uh, our mutual friend and a friend of the show, Tina Rivenbark, introduced us. That was uh, a lot of fun getting to know you there at that happy hour. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Uh, but I remember kind of approaching that little circle and looking at you and I'm like, wait a minute, I know you. I listened to your show when I was a fellow and uh, resident and all that stuff. So look just like your picture. I think I told you that at the time. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's uh, achieving minor celebrity status in a very small, strange corner of the world is one of the yeah you know, funny things about having, having a podcast. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so for our listeners, why don't you describe a little bit, how are you currently, what's your sphere of professional responsibility look like? And how are, what's your clinic setup right now? Yeah. So uh, as you said, I'm an interventional uh, pain uh, physician. I am an anesthesia by training. So I'm an anesthesiologist. I actually did a, a pediatric anesthesia fellowship. So I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist as well, but I ended up wanting to just pursue what I wanted to from the get-go, which was uh, interventional pain. And I'm very happy that I did that. Currently, I am in private practice, like you mentioned. I started uh, this practice in my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. It's called Spine and Pain Specialists of the Carolinas. We opened uh, at near the end of June of last year, so we're about one month and change in, roughly. You've heard me say this in the past, but every day is a new day. You know, there's no formal training that we get in medical school about like how to do a Google ad or how to set up Google Analytics and do Google tags of tracking the, uh, the patient's journey from Google search to clicking on your website, where they click, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty cool to kind of see this aspect of life that we don't, as physicians generally, uh, be, uh, get exposed to. Mm -hmm. So obviously, in order to go from point A to point B, you have to have a lot of mentors and, and, and people kind of help coach you along the way. And we each have our own subset of people that allow that to happen. And I'm grateful for each person that's kind of allowed me to get to this point and we're going to continue. I'm curious about the um, Pete's fellowship. But, and uh, was it during that year where mm -hmm. you're like, no, nope, pain is the thing or how, how did that kind of unfold for you? 
I think during my CA2 year, he was one of my last few rotations as a, a CA2 anesthesia resident. I mean, obviously, I loved anesthesia. I mean, uh, there's a reason why I had picked that from the get-go. And if I had to do it all over, I'd probably pick the same specialty. Actually, not probably. I would. Because, I mean, it's an incredible field. I love it. And so, to piggyback off that, I mean, Pete's anesthesia, I found very intriguing. And one of the more intriguing aspects of it was where I trained or where I did my fellowship, we had the only pediatric pain clinic in the state of Michigan which is a unique kind of opportunity. A lot of the other pediatric anesthesia fellowships don't necessarily didn't have that. So that was one of the caviar, one of the interesting things that kind of attracted me to it. But yeah, I started that fellowship on uh, July 1st. And on July 4th, I'm like, well, I still want to do pain. But I did finish the fellowship, which is important. And also that's you know, it's it, it's important. Uh, you got to commit to whenever you sign up for something. But so when that year finished, I decided to just continue to pursue what I wanted to from the get go. And that's when I decided to or that's when I did my interventional pain fellowship, which was incredible. Incredible. Yeah, you talked uh, about my program director the, was Dr. Harry yeah, Sukumar. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my program director was Dr. Harry Sukumar and great guy. He it was just an incredible fellowship. I mean, we excelled and obviously the, what I call the bread and butter stuff, injections and things like that really just got a lot of hands on. Um, I mean, we, the amount of procedures as fellows that each of us left with was incredible. And I didn't know that at the time, but as you go through your process and you become an attending and for a little while, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but for a little while I worked at Duke and I was working with their fellows it it was just night and day with the amount of experience that I was able to obtain in my fellowship at Wayne State compared to the general fellowships across the country. And so that was one of my strong suits. It, we got exposed from all the basic items and all the fancy items, meaning all the newer interventions that were kind of coming into the field as a whole, like... Uh, SI joint fusion and uh, you know DRG and all these things. So to get your hands wet or feet wet rather during your fellowship year, I think is what's key. And you know everybody that's kind of trying to pick out which fellowship they should go to for pain. I mean it it really does matter because even if you are exposed to a single procedure even once as an attending, it really removes that barrier for you to continue that. It's not like you need to be special or have a certain skill set to be able to do X, Y, or Z procedure, but it's guts. And so to be, I guess, as a comparison, to go from a fellowship where you're just doing injections and then all of a sudden day two of being an attending, you know, whether your employer or your group, whoever, your partner wants you to do, I mean, even in mild case or a, a SI fusion case, not saying that individual that only did injections can't do it. Anybody can do anything, but it helps so much to be able to be like, yeah, I was exposed to this in fellowship. And it just gives you the guts to just continue down and continue to grow your skills and so on and so forth. Even peripheral nerve stim, I ended up, ended up becoming one of my niches during my early years as an attending. And 
I, if I look back about kind of what allowed me to do that, it wasn't me being an anesthesiologist and knowing how to use an ultrasound that, you know, goes hand in hand, but it's just exposure and it learning patient selection. And it, 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 it really helps develop your skill set. So going where picking where you go to fellowship, I think is astronomical and has the potential to set the path for your beginning of your career. Yeah. My observation has been those really successful, those docs who launch a practice earlier in their career, you've, you've got to get like the fire baptism. Eventually <laughs> you can either get it in training or you're going to get it with that first job or whenever you take the job, that's higher volume. Mm-hmm. It's very tough to launch a practice, never having done that and needing to understand the operational efficiency and the necessary throughput to be able to make a clinic work economically without ever yeah, having exactly gotten your hands dirty. It's uh, that, that's a very heavy lift. And then you're, you have to learn everything all at the same time. It's better to not be in that position if you don't have to be. Yeah. So even with me taking my first jobs, like I, I interviewed everywhere. I interviewed in North Carolina, uh, multiple cities, Atlanta, uh, Michigan, and just trying to find the right fit. And the biggest thing that I had to decide was where do I want to live? And for me, obviously, it was a little bit easier because I wanted to move back to my hometown, which is which is actually what I ended up doing. So that was kind of cool to look back on. But even during the job search, so people that are employers or these corporate company, uh, we call it recruiters or even other physicians that are hiring newer attendings for their group or practice or hospital system, that's the main thing they look for. So like, what were your volumes? What did you do? Were you used to having the most expensive, pristine block kit under the sun and being accustomed to this fancy way, or did you just get a sterile drape and get and drop down a syringe and a needle and just what you need? So being able to be to adapt, I think, is what's important. And that's essentially what they kind of take away from it to be able to gauge who you are as a person and a physician. So for me and my fellowship, like I said, I got exposed to everything everything. It was an incredible fellowship. And Dr. Sukumaran did an incredible job. Uh, and I always be, will, will be grateful for that. But when I was going through that job search, like that was probably my first two questions across the board from everybody was like, are you used to high volumes? Are you used to like, what do you require for your procedures? And it was easy because I would drop down just what I needed, meaning a syringe, the needle and the actual procedure needle, just the bare bones, if you could say. And we were doing annoying stuff. It was basically a private practice set up, but obviously an ACGME fellowship. Mm-hmm. So we would do sometimes 25 plus procedures a day with obviously guidance and, and, and having the attending there and things like that and learning it the proper way. And not just rushing through procedures, learning why something is done, explaining to the patient like X, Y, and Z, meaning, you know, this is the pathology, this is what we're doing, and this is the result and what you can expect. So learning the management, not just during the procedure and maybe seeing maybe seeing the patient after, no, you got to follow through the entire journey of that patient in order to truly get a grasp of what you're doing. And it doesn't happen overnight. I remember vividly at the six-month mark, it was like a literal light switch in my head where 
everything just clicked. And I think mm-hmm. I was even in a procedure when the light switch went the other way in a good way. And it was like my vision changed. It was crazy. But I, I've, I've talked about this with some other friends and stuff and other people feel the same way. It's just like you have to, it's really getting that 2D image and being able to transform that into a 3D image, but in your brain uh, based on the fluoro image. One of the biggest reasons I ended up picking my first job uh, was because I think they recognized that. They recognized I had the ability to do high volume. I had the intuition to learn a little bit, to have a grasp on billing and efficiency uh, practices and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right out of the back, out of fellowship, I was the only doctor in that clinic. I had 11 staff. I had a nurse practitioner. From day one, I changed like different things to make things more efficient. I, I changed the time slots of, of, of patients, meaning I think new patients were 45 minutes or something like that. And return visits were 20 or something, something of that nature. And I'm like, no, we should do a few things. Let's do, let's, instead of doing procedure, patient, procedure, patient, and just running around like a chicken, we can group things. So I made it so that it was half day procedures every day and then clinic patients. So the staff loved that because it was more efficient. I made the time slots shorter. I did new patient 30 minutes is just an example and follow-ups 15 minutes. I So little efficiency maneuvering changes that I made even just right out of fellowship my first month. I mean, within six months, the clinic was profitable. I mean, it was doing great. I introduced a lot of new interventions, for example, peripheral nerve stem that, again, not special, but it just wasn't being done. And it just takes somebody to bring that to the table. Obviously, I had the guidance of incredibly smart, smart, smart people, and they helped me through that process. But like I said, you got to have a team in order for you to be able to succeed. You can't do anything on your own. So when you had that light bulb moment, six months into fellowship, was that a moment when you were like, I want to launch my own practice at some point? Or was it like, I, you know, I'm liking the vibe of what private practice pain has to offer. And maybe that was a second iteration before you're like, I need to do this my way. Actually more remedial than that. The light switch was more about what am I seeing on the image? And is it, am I going to the right space or spot? And why am I doing that? Mm-hmm. But to piggyback off that, it's, I think I subconsciously always had the intent to kind of do my own practice and it's easier to do in the beginning of your career when you know you may not have a lot of obligations compared to being i don't know a 20-year experienced attending and then deciding to branch out on your own but then you get a lot of other obligations like life like kids and marriage and you know just life stuff so in my mind it was either do it now or in the meeting in the beginning or don't do it kind of thing so, and then also, probably realistically, my entire entire family's bloodline is business. So I'm the first physician in my entire bloodline. Uh, my brother and sister are uh, dentists, and uh, my sister's doing her pediatric dentistry fellowship, and my brother's at UPenn doing dental school. But perhaps, so I know that my sister and I, and my brother's too early in the process to be able to comment, but... My sister and I, we kind of do have a little bit of a entrepreneurial um, intuition, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think that was always my subconscious goal to be able to start my own practice. But as a fellow, you don't realize it at the time, but you 
don't know anything. Like you can know how to move a needle from point A to point B, but you don't know a lot of things. Like you don't, it takes time, it takes experience and it's normal. Um, and so my, my foundation, not only obviously when you're a fellow, you create your foundation, but in my opinion, the true foundation is made during your first one, two, et cetera, years of being in attending and all those things and efficiency changes and improvements, uh, that I made at my first job. I think that was the foundation that gave me the guts to be like, you know what? I need to move back home for my family reasons. Um, I loved my first job. I loved it. Literally. If you can't tell from the sound of my voice, like I really did, but I needed to move home. And it was that foundation that I established at that locate at that place to be able to give me the guts to do this. And I don't know if I would have had that level of confidence to be able to, if I didn't have that foundation, I mean, learning billing, learning efficiency, like I said, the best phrase I've been told, if I can look back from other attendings is you can't get paid until you learn how you get paid. And really it's not about the money aspect of it, but it's more so you have to understand the way billing works in order to maximize patient care, efficiency, uh, outcomes. I mean, they all kind of go hand in hand. But yeah. Did you get that billing that exposure? Was, the, was it in that attending role or did you get exposure to some of that in fellowship as well? Because I agree, that's like a really important uh, facet. And it's generally a huge, one of the biggest yeah. knowledge gaps for new practice owners is like, how do we get paid? How does billing work? And how do we troubleshoot billing? And mm-hmm. if you can't close that gap, again, in training or on somebody else's dime, then you're going to learn in the school of hard knocks. <laughs> yes, you will. In fellowship, I think the goal, looking back, was really just be a good doctor. And I don't know if it's smart for a fellow to be focused on billing. You can make an argument for that and against that. But the concept remains, meaning... Fellowship is meant to learn how to be a better interventional pain physician and give your patients the best outcome that is possible that through your skill set. So during my first job, that's really where I kind of learned CPT codes, learned billing, learned that process. And I mean, I use the resources I had available. I would set up meetings, set up calls, uh, ask questions via email. I mean, at least multiple times a week for almost two years. Going back to that team concept that you have to have people or resources and just you can't be afraid to ask questions because if you're afraid to ask questions, you'll never be able to grow. You have to be nice and polite and appropriate about it when you do that. But yeah, you have to be inquisitive. You have to be you have to inquire. So that's Did where you have I got an internal billing department or was it an external biller that you were working with at that time? We had a internal biller, but between the billing department of me asking questions and honestly going on the CMS uh, LCD website and reading the fine print about what certain procedures require and what is and what is not allowed. Um, I can give you some examples. Uh, for example, back in if I'm not mistaken, April 2021, Medicare required only one uh, test block before doing a certain type of radio frequency. Um, 
And then uh, around that time frame, it became two. Uh, another example is, you know, they I used to do the two tests that are required for before doing a radio frequency seven days apart. And then as of recent, depending on what state, and this may vary from across the country, but now it's required to be two weeks apart and just learning how to navigate a denial. So I would do my own peer to peers uh, instead of having my nurse practitioner do it. And that also actually allowed me to learn a lot. I know certain fellowships in the country do make their fellows do peer to peers. So that is a great example of learning that process in training, but at the same time, focusing on taking care of the patient. So that's a great, happy medium there. But yeah, so for me, peer to peers, billing, reimbursements and all that stuff, I kind of had to learn on my own. And the only way, at least for me, that I can truly learn or understand something is if I do it on my own. For me to sit in a lecture and just absorb it like a sponge, a majority of people people probably could do that. I I can't. I have to do it myself. <laughs> yeah, that these types of discussions are one of the things that I found really helpful about the practice management segments of something like the Aspen meeting or the Azra pain meeting upcoming here in November. I learned an immense amount just from going there and listening to, you know, Dr. Greider, Dr. Provenzano, mm-hmm. a number of others who have been really helpful for me to understand these, uh, the nuance and complexity of, obviously I, it's not my job and I don't do it, but many of my clients deal with these problems. Sure. And so being able to understand the categories of education that are required for successful private practitioners is, uh, useful for me providing comprehensive care and service for them could not agree more with everything you're saying and just diving in, getting your hands dirty, especially doing it in a, you know, an employed role, whether a fellow or a working for somebody else. That's kind of ideal. Get in. You, you only yeah. have to look dumb once, ask all the questions, make all the mistakes. And then, uh, yeah, you can't be afraid improve. to ask. I mean, at the end, at the end of the day, let's just say the worst thing happens where you ask a question and someone makes you feel stupid. Just like the worst possible imagine. Let's just say it happens. Who cares? Literally, who cares? It's probably good for uh, you. It's anyway, a different it's story. <laughs> if you're five years in as an attending and then you ask that, obviously no one's going to say anything negative to you, at least to your face. But right. my point is just ask questions. Don't be afraid. The worst thing that is that we'll say is they'll make fun of you and then you'll forget about it. So you got to be your own advocate too at the same time, but be polite and respectful during that process is what's the key. I've seen a lot of uh, commonality in terms of like branding and marketing between successful dentists and successful uh, pain practices. So I'm curious, have you and your sister like compared notes at all? And is that something that you guys talk about? So she's not yet because, so we're eight years apart. So she just started her pediatric and, sorry, pediatric dentistry fellowship. And so that fellowship is two years long and she's in Virginia, but yes, I mean, it will. I mean, it's, I think it's, they're lucky that they have a brother that they can just kind of, it's like an open encyclopedia and I have to answer. (laughs) So it's a win-win for them, but yeah, the more I learn now, the better I can help them, I guess, later. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course I will. I mean, it's my it's my duty. But yeah, actually, interesting enough that you brought up the marketing stuff. So again, you got to explore your resources that you have. So my logo, my brochure, my business cards, the referral facts form, tear sheet, little phrases and paragraphs of writing and on the website, 
my very uh, one of my best friends uh, he was actually my college roommate and he's not a physician but he's in the marketing realm of life and stuff for his actual work and so he helped me make my logo he helped me do all the marketing material brochure stuff and i mean i love my logo i think it's really cool even the banner on a zoom call he made or the banner on the top page of a linkedin thing he made which is really cool. And uh, he actually runs my social media as well and my Google ads. So hmm. he, um, the, my, my favorite joke to say is I think one of the most lucrative things I'll ever do in my entire life will be my social media handle. So I own at pain doctors, like literally the word at and then, or the at sign and then pain doctors. I snagged it back in 2016, 2017. So kind of, proving the fact that I think subconsciously I kind of always wanted to do this, but I have it on every platform, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, what else am I missing? Uh, all of it, Instagram, even threads, hmm. the new yeah. the Instagram thing threads. So, uh, but joking aside, I mean, that it does matter. I know it historically in the healthcare field, social media hasn't had a, really a place that much to be honest but things are changing it's a more technological society and actually if you look at the analytics on the google page and stuff most of my younger patients are finding me through instagram social media youtube mm -hmm. things like that so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out obviously it's not the same as finding a, a new restaurant that's opening in a city near you uh, from social media, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't come into play is what I'm saying, I guess. So we'll see how that kind of plays out as, as the decades go by and healthcare and stuff like that. But it all kind of makes a difference and in, in, in ex increases exposure. I do a lot of uh, like at Aspen, I was on a uh, peripheral nerve stem panel and, you know, these little things, not only help and make yourself feel better because you're at least bringing something to the table to your field and trying to learn from other colleagues and sharing your own experiences but these also help with exposure especially if when you're in private practice i mean if joe smith has any uh, everyday back pain i mean he has hundreds of doctors at his disposal to be able to pick from but how do you pick and so you Google search by zip code and SEO and their search engine optimization things to make your rankings go higher. This is just a whole life that I never kind of knew about and how important it actually could be from a business standpoint. Yeah. For our listeners, check out last week's episode where I discussed the two levers of practice profitability. You need volume, patient volume, and you need contracts. That is reimbursement. That is fair on a per patient basis to be able to make enough money to make it work. Actually, I, I would add one more to that. Yeah, That's sure. quality. Quality. You yeah. have to, if you just kind of are a quote unquote needle jockey, which, you know, that's a phrase I learned in fellowship because that's not what you want to be. You want to be able to evaluate, properly diagnose, properly do an exam, properly explain to the patient. The one thing that kills me is hearing a patient come to me and tell and them telling me I had a cortisone injection. I know it. this could just be me, but in my opinion, 
the fact that a patient doesn't know what kind of procedure they had, or they call everything a cortisone injection, like, I mean, big picture, I understand, right? Because patients didn't go to medical school. They don't know, and nor do they need to. But it, I do think they deserve to know the specifics, maybe not the nitty gritty, but enough to know mm-hmm. what was done. And so, actually, all the time I end up saying to patients, like, you're actually, your body makes cortisol, but you don't get injected with cortisone. It's dexamethasone, and then there's this kind depending on the patient, if they end up bringing up the conversation. But like I was trained not to use particulate steroid by the spine. And sometimes they'll be like, well, are you going to use the white one or the clear one? And I'll explain to them what the difference is. It doesn't take two minutes. You can sign the consent or sorry, you can do like review of certain charts and things like that while you're talking to them. The And I think the patients appreciate that. So that's kind of what I meant by quality. Yeah, that's great. As it relates to, you know, the, the things you're sharing before about the, the marketing efforts, the webpage, which by the way, spinepaincarolinas.com for our listeners. If anybody wants to check it out, we'll also throw it in the show notes as well as links to Dr. Kumar's social profiles. It sounds like that was an important driver for volume in the early days. And you just had your first birthday of your practice anniversary. So you're not yeah. that far into this. Can you talk about what, how did you think about volume and like social versus pounding the pavement, you know, talking to docs locally versus any other approaches that you might've taken? I think the hands down, the best approach, I think regardless of what geography of the United States, somebody might be in or a doctor might be in is the old school. What I say, Mark Cuban method, kind of back to the phrase of not being shy in terms of asking questions. Don't be shy to go and introduce yourself. Not only am I not, because we, we all are reading the same book. We're all trained to an extent very similarly. So what am I bringing to the table? What am I doing different than the probably 10 other people in the city that I'm in? And that can only be portrayed to the referring physician in terms of face-to-face encounters. So I, uh, in the very early stages, when I only had a handful of patients, if that during, you know, for each day, well, I didn't just go home and do nothing. I would literally go see those patients or group them in the morning and then spend the entire rest of the day going and just knocking on door to door. What was interesting is what was interesting is you have to remember that just because your scrub top says MD on it, does not allow you to just walk through the front door of X, Y, and Z practice. You have to maintain your humbleness and maintain your respectfulness towards others when you walk into their environment. So you knock on the door, meaning meaning you open the door, go to their lobby and talk to their front desk person, chat with them for a few minutes. And whether they need to schedule a certain time to talk to you between yourself and the referring physician, or if you get lucky and they happen to be having a few minutes between patients, they may even let you go back then and talk to them. So, but regardless, the the meeting point, the face-to-face is really what I think makes the difference. So, because you can send an email or send a message through uh, Epic and message other nearby doctors or whatever, but it's the same goes for any business or non-business relationship. You got to meet and talk to the person. Just like when we all went through medical school and especially residency and fellowship interviews, 
you probably didn't talk to or talk about a single thing related to medicine. The entire conversation of that interview was, tell me about yourself. That was the probably the most common first question anybody ever asked me in inter, any medically related interview. But that same concept applies to real life, meaning trying to go out and meet referral sources. So I was kind of strategic. I started with the bigger referral sources, meaning primary care, uh, certain subspecialties, neurology, and things like that. And then once I kind of made my rounds and met as many people as I could, and as you get busier, it becomes more and more difficult to be able to fit that time, but that doesn't mean that you stop doing it. So just because you meet Dr. Joe Smith on the first month of your self-opening doesn't mean you never have to go back and see Dr. Joe Smith again because he's been referring you patients and that's a quote-unquote stable referral source. No, mm -hmm. he's still a human being and you still need to make sure that he's happy and he's not having any issues with sending you referrals or vice versa and that they're receiving the notes. And the biggest thing feedback wise I learned over the past year is something I created called a communication sheet. So Dr. Joe Smith sends a patient to my practice to get evaluated. Okay. So now uh, the rule I created in my practice is when we get the referral, we will add it to this tracker. It's an Excel online spreadsheet that's patient HIPAA protected and all that stuff secure. So that way we can make sure that nothing slips through the cracks. And if we call the patient three times and they don't respond, I have a communication sheet where I will send that information back to the referring physician so they know, meaning closed loop communication. And honestly, that's all people ask for. They're not asking for you to pull a rabbit out of a hat, but they're asking for you to be quick as possible, respectful, help their patient and communicate. I think those are the biggest things. And if you can maintain that, your referral sources will be maintained as well. And then touch base with them every so often, either once a quarter, once a month, whatever you're able to just, Hey, do you have any, just wanted to check in or touch base, wanted to make sure you're not having any issues sending us referrals or uh, communicating with my front desk people. I, always make a point to make sure that every provider, whether they are nurse practitioner, PA, uh, MD, DO, I don't care, anybody has my contact information, my my cell phone. I don't just give them like my general contact line. Um, doctors aren't going to abuse your cell phone number. And if anything, it's only going to improve patient care and only going to strengthen your relationship, in my opinion. Other people may think differently, but I think that was one of the bigger strong suits for myself because it shows personability. I think I tell people literally coming, this is my cell phone number that I've had since high school. And it's the same 704 number that I had using the, the little cricket or not cricket singular phone with the flashy orange lights on it. But yes. now I have an iPhone, but it's the same number. Was this a but new yeah, skill that's, set that's for the you? biggest I'm thing. I'm curious because this is definitely one of those things that falls under the category of like, not only do you not, learn it in med school and training. You don't even know, you don't even have a category to understand that, well, I'm literally going to spend 75% of my days for the first three months of my practice cold calling other doctors. So how did you experience that? The first one or two was weird um, just because you're coming out of your comfort zone. And then now I have no shame. <laughs> I, I mean, I will, I don't, I'll walk in and I'll meet physical therapists. I will meet, I went to yoga studios. Uh, I was playing pickleball the other day and 
ironically, it's it truly is America's most growing, fastest growing sport. I mean, honestly, and I've had I even learned about pickleball from my own patients, mm. and they would come to me and they would say, "Well, I've been playing a lot more pickleball recently, and you know, my this part of my body hurts, or it's been bothersome, or becoming a nuisance and affecting my day to day stuff." And I kind of starting to re, uh, to get scared of playing because of the pain that happens after. So I happened to be going to play at a local pickleball place with my own friends. And I just ended up trying to go because I was losing at the time. So I walked away and just, you know, wanted to get a, a distraction. So I was like, you know what, let me go actually find the manager. So I went back to my car, grabbed a few brochures, uh, trifold brochures and a stack of little cards. And then I literally walked up to the manager. I'm like, hey, I know you just guys opened about a week and a half ago, but I've actually, surprisingly, I've had a large number of my uh, older patients kind of get into this sport and they love it. But God forbid, you know, if you ever have a situation where somebody needs uh, some information about maybe they can see somebody, here's my contact info. I gave them a few brochures and I was like, I hope you don't have to call me, but just know that I'm happy to see anybody. I take all insurances. But little things like that. And so now when I walk in there, the manager says hi to me. Not that I go there too much or not that he's doing me any favor. There was no transactional anything, but it's just personability. It's yeah. it, that's exposure. It's little things like that. Let's see what else. Uh, aquatic therapy places going to like a YMCA and ghosts just going to meet their director of PT. Even if I don't even get past the front desk sometimes. And again, I want to stress this because. There are other, there, there are some stories I've heard of other people that have started private practices. And I guess when they were not allowed back, they threw a tantrum, which to me is kind of doesn't make sense, but they shot themselves in the foot. And again, just because you have MD on your shirt doesn't mean that you are some special person that just allows you to just walk past barriers. Like, I, I mean, maybe in your own head, you can think that, but <laughs> it's not in real life. That is not a real life statement. Like you cannot do that. So the key is to be humble, be respectful and treat every person like you would treat like your own relative or something. So sometimes they don't let you back. Most of the time they do. I'll be honest, they do, but it doesn't mean it's guaranteed. And so those times I just, create a rapport with a front desk person. If they're busy, I'll wait patiently and I'll give them my contact info. Nine times out of 10, they will pass that along to the office manager and they'll reach out. Sometimes it's dead silence as if you were selling some pharmaceutical drug. It's okay. You can't let the no's or the negatives stop you. Just You can't stop. You can't get discouraged and you have to remind yourself to keep moving. I think that's the key. What else after the first year that you've got under your belt, anything that has surprised you or turned out not the way that you expected or either to the good side or the bad? Yeah, actually, <laughs> yes. But so I think also the biggest thing when you start is you got, I got lucky. I found the most incredible PMA that was my first employee and uh, that person is still with us. but. Yeah, you gotta as a, as a private practice slash employer, you also have to maintain your what's the morale of the office. 
never take anything for granted. You have to make sure each individual person is treated like an individual person and their feelings and their thoughts and what their goals are also matter. Mm-hmm. So, and if they're happy, then they will create a better experience for your patients. And then the practice is happy and then therefore you're happy. Mm-hmm. So I know these small little things, but again, they don't teach us this. They don't teach us that you should have little outings for your staff to make sure that they feel appreciated. It, it Even if it's just a birthday card with nothing in it, it matters. They want, I mean, we all remember being a fellow and a resident. It, there's no difference. Like we were also employed in little people, but we had feelings and we had those attendings that treated us with respect. And we had those attendings that didn't. And that obviously changed your performance with certain settings. And that extrapolates out to real life as well. You asked me another thing about little things that I've encountered over the year. The biggest thing is insurance. So insurance is interesting because, and I've learned a lot about this whole process. How do I get into this? I guess long story short, I had a patient, regular private insurance or something in a very appropriate fashion and a very step ladder uh, algorithmic approach, the patient ended up going to proceed with a spinal cord stem trial. Long story short, she ended up doing great and ended up getting implanted, so on and so forth. And I'm very happy for her. This has nothing really to do with the patient, but it has something to do about the insurance because this won't be the last time this happens and this is not the first time this will ever happen. So apparently insurance, when you go and type the, when you pull up or verify an insurance information for any person, any human being, and let's say it's, I don't know, Blue Cross Blue Shield of whatever state, you put that information in and your medical record system will verify it. So apparently there was a, when you verify it, it in the, its active policy, it'll come back and it'll say verified. But a patient has 90 days to pay the premium of their health insurance policy. And if they don't pay the premiums at the end of the 90 days that, they're, that they owe for their health insurance, the insurance company will back data and retroactively cancel that policy. So if you do a big number value procedure and you verify insurance and you get the authorization and you do all the proper stuff and you verify it and it says verified, at the end of the day, there's no guarantee though that you will get reimbursed. There apparently was a bill that was going to be passed that would say verified, but premium unpaid or premiums paid, but that bill didn't go through. And so long story short, the premiums were not paid and the policy got retroactively canceled. And the only person that loses is a practice or me (laughs) in that situation. But that is just one example of little nuances. And I'm sure there are 50 other stories, but I haven't encountered them yet is the key. And so it's the when you have an issue or a problem, it's not letting you have to make sure you don't let it get to you. It's, it's not going to be the last time and you learn from it. But in this case, there's actually ironically not much you can do to change management there. But it's one of those it is what it is situations. Again, there's going to be 100 other instances and 100 different variations of this instance. 
So you learn as you go. Every day is a new day. I think that's a great place to wrap up. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best place for them to find you? Well, uh, if you look on any social media platform, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, it's uh, at Pain Doctors, P-A-I-N Doctors. Our practice website is, as you mentioned, www.spinepaincarolinas with an S.com. We're located in Charlotte, North Carolina. People, Our email is actually on there um, on the website. And so if you ever have any questions or anything like that, you can also find me on LinkedIn. If you just search Jay Kumar, I'm sure maybe 50 or 60 of them, but you'll see uh, the one that's a pain doctor in there, I think. But, you know, two two common names that are combined together. That's right. Well, Dr. Jay, Jay Kumar, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us on APM Success. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, well, hopefully I get to meet with you in person soon again. I look forward to it. Thanks. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.